Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. My guest today from Austin, Texas, is uh, Gregory Curtis, here to talk about his new book, Paris Without Her. Uh, Gregory, welcome. Thank you. And I, I notice uh, you've also written a book about uh, cave painting, which we'll talk about later. I think it may have been suggested by your horse riding, riding trips in the Perigord. Uh-huh. But let's go back to Texas Monthly, which is where you met uh, Tracy, who was the, the star of this book, if you will. And I'm also wondering at that time, it was early in the life of Texas Monthly, uh, if Molly Ivins was your hire or you inherited her? No, no, she uh, she never worked for Texas Monthly, but uh, she contributed uh, very rarely. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, but I was, you know, the part of a. I was there at the very beginning. Uh, I, had, I was living in San Francisco, and I came to Austin to uh, start with this startup magazine and uh there was a small handful of us and lo and behold we made it work amazing what was the uh the impetus who were you who were you modeling the magazine on well the the magazine was the idea of the founder and publisher named mike levy and he had uh he loved magazines and he had gone to the Wharton School where he had seen Philadelphia Magazine, which was a very robust magazine at the time. I haven't seen it for a long time, but at the time it, it, it was really something. And so he had the idea of having, a, a instead of a, a magazine about a city, a magazine about a state. And... Uh, well, Texas that, is almost like a country, right? And the 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 premise was that people, yes, that uh, you were a Texan, and then maybe you were from Dallas, and maybe you were from Houston or from San Antonio, but you were a Texan first, so that that was the uh, main loyalty. Yeah, and how long were you there? I was there from seventy. Uh, two until 2000. And uh, I was editor from uh, 81 until 2000 for 19 years. Uh, there was a writer, I believe his name was Burroughs, who wrote a book called uh, on, on Oil. Uh, Brian Burroughs? Yeah, yeah. Big something. Uh, Big Rich, I believe. Big Rich, right, right. Yeah. Uh, that came out, if my memory is correct, that came out about that time in the... Uh, early to mid 70s uh I, I think he was a new yorker writer though and i think a lot of what you were were doing was, uh gave a, a cultural imprimatur to texas for people who perhaps are not aware of how much culture culture was resident yeah we 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 thought uh i mean humbly we thought our competition was not well, there was not whatever Texas media there was. We thought our competition was were the national magazines uh, that that everyone knows about, and we, you know, gauged what we did uh, against them. So we had very we had very high ambitions in a journalistic and literary way, uh, and wanted to bring that and focus that on Texas. 
And I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I, I was uh, quite aware of Texas Monthly, uh, even before I started seeing it on my travels into Texas. So uh, you accomplished that objective. Yeah, we uh, it 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 took off pretty not immediately, but pretty quickly, and uh, uh, it became obvious fairly quickly that this was going to work and so on. And, you know, here it is still today uh, uh, going along. So it was a good idea and and we executed it as, as best we could. No, okay, and congratulations. A good job. I, I define this work as a, a love story, a travelogue, and then finally a, a journey of renewal and kind of going back to Paris that you've kind of recovered some of what you've lost. Uh, why don't we begin with the, the coup de food when you looked up from your desk and there was Tracy. Right, that, that happened um, in uh, early 73 and uh, we, Texas Monthly, we had these uh, very cheap, miserable offices. The buildings long ago torn down and uh, she uh, had knew the publisher a little bit before and so we had a kind of right from New York. You got to be careful with us. I'm sorry. Jewish guys from New York. You've got to be. Oh, well, no, he's, he was from Dallas actually, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. You still have to be careful. Uh, but anyway, uh, I was there and at this, uh, in this kind of writer's bullpen and suddenly there was Tracy in the door, in the doorway being shown around and, as I say in the book, I, you know, in that moment, I didn't know that I would marry her, but I did know that I love her, loved her, love her. And uh, uh, it, re it really was, uh, I, in fact, I titled that section, There Is No Love Except Love at First Sight, which I believe. And uh, that was definitely the case. Uh, had, had you experienced anything like this before to compare it to? No. Uh, no, I hadn't. And that, I think that was, uh, it, the, the, the complete suddenness of it and the unprecedented, uh, feeling I think was, uh, th those were all part of the power that that moment had over me. And she also had two children. So you, uh, you became a father as well at one stroke. Right. Uh, that was, that was, uh, it was, a uh, it, it was a, I don't know, brave, but it, it was a, a risky step for both of us. Uh, you know, me going from a uh, single guy and her marrying me with two children, um, and wanting to make a family out of that. Uh, but we made it work. Uh, and uh, we made it work. Uh, we, we both wanted it. And uh, that was the sustaining, uh, the, the, this thing underneath us all that sustained us. Uh, so. It does, it does take work, and, and, and it is uh, somewhat brave. Although, I mean, as you say, you had no choice. Uh, <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, reason yeah. was, not, was not part of this discussion. That's exactly ben, right. You weren't Ben Franklin with the yellow legal pad with the pros and cons. Right, uh, right. You, know, you had no choice. You, you right. You had to do it. So uh, life is sailing along. You're constructing this uh, normal, 
with ups and downs that all marriages have, but anchored by a, a deep and profound love that you shared, and boom, lung cancer. Right. Uh, first love cancer and then pancreatic cancer. Uh, and uh, so she, we, uh, from the moment that, the pancreatic cancer was diagnosed until her death was, uh, that was just a couple months. And that was, that, that was really, really, uh, bad. And, uh, uh, it, it was, yeah, it was really, uh, hard. And all the women in her family had all lived for, you know, to well into their nineties and, Tracy always thought that that was that she would too, uh, and uh, um, but uh, I'm convinced that it was smoking, and uh, there we are. Uh, no, no, I don't understand. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Corda's book, uh, Passing. Uh, and Michael uh, was the great editor at still at uh-huh. Simon and Schuster. He's retired, but he was writing about the one-year odyssey of uh, his wife's bout with brain cancer. Oh. And, and you know, what? at what point do you feel, uh, did we get there fast enough? Did I make the right decisions? And you talk about uh, whether she'd been better off being at home uh, rather than going to MD Anderson for that second bout. Right. Uh, just wrestling with answers to which there are no answers. And I found in reading that, I mean, I've not had, had this experience, fortunately, but I, I, I could see where it was helpful. And I'm wondering if, even though it was much after the fact when you got to this book, um, if it would kind of help you put that in perspective. Yeah, and, you know, I've uh, people have uh, uh, talked to me about that this is a uh, book where I, uh, you know, a book about grief and a book about loss and so on. And, and yes, that's in there, but actually... In my mind, it's a book about happiness and a book about um, uh, our life together. I mean, it uh, that is uh, those are the chapters. Uh, the chapters about us going to Paris. Um, uh, th- those were that was a joyful thing to relive those and uh, you know go back to the photographs and journals and so on so that I, you know, to refresh my memory and no, to absolutely. write I those. Wanted, I just wanted to set up for the listener a sense of what you were going through. And yeah. To talk about that joy. But again, that's also uh, a part of life and a part of love. The uh, difficult for you to, to live through the the act of love while you're seeing her pain and sharing her pain. Yeah. It's unbearable. It was unbearable at the time. Well, let's go back to, to Paris. Uh, you grew up in the uh, the Paris of the Plains. As it's <laughs> That's I right. Know, I know Paris doesn't refer to itself as the Kansas City of the Seine. We talk about, a little bit about, about Bill Curtis, your stepfather, uh, which I, maybe was a good template for you as a, a parent of two children who you adopted. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the influence, uh, you know, obviously Hemingway and Talk about Kansas City and how it set you up to go to Paris. Yeah, that's uh, um, that came that came as a little bit of a surprise to me when I started writing. You know, I wrote about Tracy's background and then wrote about my background just to fill the reader in on 
mm-hmm. how we had gotten to this point. And so, um, thinking back about Kansas City, there, there, and doing some research, it turns out that there, that yes, Kansas City, it's uh, I don't know if who, but they it built itself as the as the Paris of the Plains, and this was a very this was a conscious. Um, uh, city uh, identity, and there were uh, place, uh, places that uh, there were the Paris blah 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 on menus. There were the you know the Paris spring fashions. That was all part of uh, of the of the atmosphere in Kansas City, and it was also Charlie Parker and there were, right, right. There were there were it, it, in its in the in its day in the 30s it was uh it was a burgeoning artistic town on a river and there that's there's that parallel too uh and then of course there's the the Hemingway connection uh Hemingway went from Kansas City I don't know they went directly from Kansas City to Paris but he lived in Kansas City Okay. He was, okay. He was writing first for the Kansas City Star as, as a cub, and I guess there are no cub reporters anymore. And then he worked for the uh, Toronto Star. Right. Okay. That's right. That's right. And then and that's, where, that's where he really, I think, formed his style because he he learned to write short sentences. He uh, on on deadline, although he didn't have the deadlines when writing his books, but he had learned that craft of communicating in few words. Right. Right. But so, but to me. The uh, even in high school, the uh, the idea that you could go from Kansas City to Paris was a real idea, whereas going even going from Kansas City to New York somehow didn't seem to be or to London or to Rome didn't seem to be that possible to me, Uh, whereas Paris, I'm just saying that's the way I was thinking then. I'm not saying this is the truth of the capital T, but that's how that was the feeling. Uh, and certainly the feeling I had, uh, growing up, uh, my stepfather, as, as you said, he, he, uh, he knew a little French and he liked to read in translation. He liked to read, there was some French novels and so on. So I was, had, had some introduction to the culture, even when I was very young. You weren't a stranger to Balzac, for example. No, no, that's right. I, I, you know, knew who he was, and there were some of his books around. And, uh, you know, when you're 12 in Kansas City, pick up a novel by Balzac. It, it's a, it's kind of rough going. So I, 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 <laughs> I came to Balzac later. <laughs> well, we all read. I remember. I don't know about you. Uh, my sophomore uh, English high school English class in uh, in New York. You had a choice of My Antonia or The Sun Also Rises. And, you know, no stand-up guy is going to read Willa Cather when uh-huh. he's 14. Uh-huh. But much later, we find out in many respects she was the greater writer. Uh-huh. But, uh, but, you know, we saw Lady Brett. We saw the bad movie that Daryl Zanuck put together with uh, uh, Ava Gardner and uh, Tyrone Power. So, yeah, we had our, our early visions of Paris. I think right, right. And then then I uh, there was Bridget Bardot. Uh, and, uh, I don't want to, uh, I think it's, some, uh, don't want to underestimate, uh, the effect that she had certainly on, 
on uh, me and my friends uh, at that age in Kansas City, and uh, uh, and God created woman came to Kansas City, and we were all astounded. We, of course, we couldn't see it, of course, but uh, that was even you know our imaginations ran wild, and um, so that was she represented. She repre- there was a lot of Paris that we thought that Bridget Bardot represented, and I guess to some degree she did. She did. I, I also yeah. it was a it was a change from the uh, Jane Mansfields and the Marilyn Monroe's. Yeah, right. You know, at some level, because our mothers and their friends, because we're roughly the same age, uh, aspired to that. They dressed a little bit like that when they went out. They they seemed just like normal women. They were mothers in a silk dress. Uh huh. Bridget Bardot was Bridget Bardot. Yeah, so, right, right. There's it's no a... doubt about what she's what she's emitting, and, and I think that we also it goes along with the sense of believing that anything you mentioned French menus in Kansas City, it's automatically sexier. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, so, yeah, that's exactly right. Now talk about the uh, first trip to Paris uh, with Tracy. The planning. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to talk about that that wonderful Spanish town in the uh, not too far from Lyon that's spelled R O A N N E. Talk about that experience. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, you're excused. You were young, Greg. Yeah, that's true. Uh, no, wait a minute. Wait, wait. What are we, where where are we going now? Where I'm I'm we're going to Juan to the oh right 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 that was how do you get, how do you get to Juan? <laughs> oh okay that was <laughs> yeah we we had been in Rome and the we our some friends who had traveled widely told us if you're going to Rome if you're in Rome and then you're going to Paris you want to stop at Le Fretoagro and have and eat there. And so we rented a car in Geneva and first moment that we were on French land was in a car and we drove and we got lost, of course. And um, we kept the I kept I kept thinking that the town was pronounced Roanne. And so I would. Huh? You're not alone. <laughs> no. OK. Yeah. And so I. In fact, it's pronounced one. And I would, we would stop and I'd ask people about the road to Roanne, and they looked at me bewildered. And uh, anyway, we finally did make it there. And, but that was relatively easy compared to driving into Paris and trying to find our hotel. Uh, never having been in Paris, having what we thought was an adequate map, but what was completely an inadequate map. And uh, we didn't even know where the street signs were. We we drove around uh, utterly lost and bewildered quite a while in Paris before one of us, Tracy or me, Notice these little blue plaques on the corners of uh, on the corners with, and oh my God, those are the street signs. We, we hadn't, and then we couldn't read them. They were too, you know too, we were too far away, and so on and so forth. It, 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 
it it was really something uh, to try. We just how we got to uh, our hotel was on the Rouge Cove. How we got there, I I still don't really know how we well, did I it. Probably believe that you know Paris is a series of one way streets. Uh, even the Parisians have a difficult time trying to navigate because the sort of shortest distance between two points is the crow flies is a straight line. But there are no straight lines in this town to get to your to the right. hotel Angleterre. Yeah, which was where uh, Silas Dean, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and Ben Franklin signed the Treaty of Paris in 1783. Oh, is that right? Huh. Yeah, um, I. Uh, couldn't afford it now, but the, at the time, um, it must have been more reasonable or something. We really uh, enjoyed it and thought it was very, very good. Uh, so this is something that the two of you had planned for a long time? Yeah. Well, yeah. We both, we both, the, the whole mythology of Paris, we both believed in completely. And uh, going to Paris was something that we we really really wanted above I mean we were happy to go to anywhere that fun New York San Francisco California it doesn't matter I mean that's all fine but Paris was where we really wanted to go for these uh really mythological reasons we we had great 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 expectations for what a visit to Paris would be like and um, we got there and lo and behold, it was like that. Uh, we even found, better, you say. or even better. Yeah. It, uh, we just, uh, uh, we, we were pushovers. We were in love with the city. We were already in love with the city before we even got there. And then, then we realized, oh, there's so much more here, even than we thought. Oh my God. And, uh, so that began a um, that first trip began a lifelong um, uh, love for Paris and things French uh, and started as you know back home we started to learn French and so on and so forth. Uh, well, you have those wonderful shared memories, you know, where uh, somebody will mention the drugstore, for example, and you know, and explosions of images go off in your mind as you, you remember that that experience. Right, right. That's true. That's absolutely true. You know, which and, is not a drugstore in the traditional sense. You might. It's no longer there. It's now it's right. replaced by Armani many years later. But talk a bit about the drugstore. That. That it was a great setup. I remember seeing it in '74 when I first came to Paris. Yeah, I, um, it it was it was it was really a drugstore uh, in the sense that you could go. You know, I think Tracy bought. I know she bought cigarettes there. But she, I think she bought some cosmetics there and so on. But it was also this kind of bistro uh, dance hall. Not not dance hall exactly, but it was a club uh, that that. Uh, in particular, young people went went to, and it was pulsing, and uh, it it really was alive. Even like in the afternoon, um, the the evening, forget it. It was wild, but in even in the afternoon, you, you had these felt these vibes from it, and uh, uh, it really that particular 
corner of Paris was really, it, it was really vibrant and alive because you had the you had the Dumego and Cafe de Flor, et cetera, the the legendary longtime uh, cafes and so on, and you had the church, but then you had this new now pulsing place, you know, where nobody in there was over 22. And uh, it, it just, it, it, to me, it completed the picture of the, uh, of that particular part of Paris. Uh, and uh, of course it got bombed uh, and uh, the, the, that had happened. So there was that. And then I don't know why it closed and moved, but it did at some point. It's always, I'm sure, it's a question of real estate. I mean, yeah. our money can afford that. There was a great bookstore between uh, Le Flore and uh, Demago called La Une, where all the existentialists would buy their books. It had a little, uh, a little balcony, uh, and that's gone. Uh, Flammarion owns the property, and I'm sure that the uh, the rent that Louis Vuitton is paying them far swamps the rent that they were selling uh-huh. the bookstore. That's yeah. the nature of, unfortunately, where we are. What what other memory of that particular trip uh, stands out for you? Well, we had the uh, <laughs> eating a croissant. Um, the very the very first uh, morning we were there, uh, we ordered uh, you know the breakfast brought up, and it was uh, coffee and coffee la and croissant. And it was so good. And Tracy took a bite of the croissant first and just, went, <laughs> just she loved it. and then she put a little butter on, on a piece and, and tore, tore the piece of croissant off and put it in my mouth and said, Is this the, isn't this the best thing you have ever tasted? And I, I, and it was, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and, and it was in, in, in bed in Paris, in bed in Paris. Yeah. I mean that, uh, so, uh, yeah. And I have a lot, you know, we, we walked uh, everywhere and we went up the Eiffel tower and we went to the Louvre and all these things that you do. Uh, and, but the most <laughs> distinct memory is that particular moment. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's it, it's it's certainly Proustian. It's like it's like buttered air. I don't know how they get them to be so light. You know, they, yeah. They, yeah. Of course, later on when it when it metastasizes in your body, you gain about ten pounds. But at the time you're enjoying it, you know, it's yeah. been a thought. It's just, yeah. Just right. Right. The um, you you also traveled uh, with your children. Uh, I guess one of your daughters was a horseback rider. Right. Austrian, what do you call it? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, I took a, well, I took with, Tracy didn't ride, but I took a ride that she came along on. And then I took my daughter on a ride, uh, in the, uh, Paragor, which was great. And then we met up, uh, with our son and Tracy and the four of us went to, uh, a language school in Juan and uh, then we all four came to Paris, and uh, the, uh, the the big event of that trip we had we were on the Rue de Rosier and uh, had an apartment very very small for four people, but 
the Fete, we were there for the Fête de Musique and um, who should be playing but James Brown. And so we all, we were going to all go see James Brown. Well, the crowds, we almost got separated. It was blah, 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 blah. It was very uh, tense and, um, uh, as I said, crowded and off-putting and not dangerous exactly, but not, you know, not pleasant. And so we got out of that crowd and then um, we just walked, the four of us just walked here and there in Paris and everywhere there was music. It was fantastic. Uh, every little cafe would be, you know, some kind of group and so on. And, and, a, and a few people, but not crowds like, uh, yeah. And so it turned, what started out being, uh, very unpleasant turned out to be, you know, magnificently pleasant and wonderful and relaxing. And then the, the, so there were, the streets of Paris were filled, filled, filled. And when, uh, we, we went back and went to bed and the next morning I got up and went out to go get croissants and cetera. And the streets were completely clean. They had all been cleaned and picked up during the night. It was just amazing. Now there's a civility here. I think what you, know, you were at the Republique, uh, just a huge number of people often at the Bastille. Yeah. Offense occur, but every little neighborhood uh, has something going on. And, and one thing that you all, uh, what I realize is that the French cannot sing rock and roll. They're missing an element of soul. Uh-huh. We have black people here, but they don't have soul. You know, and, uh, you know, and, and white people don't have. They can't sing that music. You know, they can yeah. be off and as nouveau, and it's almost amusing when they try to sing rock and roll. They gave us this uh, this Belgian concoction, a Johnny Holiday. Yeah, he's no Chuck Berry. Which, you know, no, there are he's, some he's things not. That we, we don't make a damn good croissant, but we can do rock and roll. <laughs> just, to, just to be good to us. <laughs> yeah. go, back, go back to the Dordogne and the Perigoran area that I like very much, and I, I take people there twice a year, mostly into the Perigord. Uh, but did the cave painters come as a result of that experience? Or? Yes. I, I, I was interested in a in a vague way, uh, archaeology and just as the subject interests me a lot in almost any branch of it and so on, I, I'm, a, I'm a, attracted to and, appeal, and it appeals to me. Uh, prehistory prehistory uh, really appeals to me. And uh, on a horseback ride with my daughter, uh, we stopped in Les Aizis and and went to uh, the Museum of Prehistory there. And um, I write about it in the book. It's kind of a complicated scene, but from the balcony, the kind of balcony of the Museum of Prehistory, you can look out, and people have been living in that area for forty thousand years, uh, give or take, and. You stand there, <coughs> excuse me, you're on these cliffs, you know you, there's overhangs, so you've got shelter, nothing can get you from behind, and you look out and the river makes a big bend there, and beyond it, it's uh, flat for a long, long way. So 
in the ancient times, you could see the game come to uh, water in the river, and so it would be plentiful. There'd be fish besides. You could see the enemy arrive. You could see if it, the enemy would have a very hard time. The enemy could not uh, sneak up on you. Uh, no way. And they, as I say, it couldn't come from behind. And uh, not only the enemy, but you know, cave cave bears and lions and such. Uh, they couldn't get you either. Uh, so, um, and that I, I thought I'm going to write a. That's when I really thought I I want to write a book about this, and and I did. I don't know. Do you know my friend Martin Walker? Who no. The, uh, he writes these uh, Bruno mysteries set in the Pillars. Oh, I don't. Know. Oh, I know those books. Uh, right. But and I. The first book he wrote was the Caves of the Perigord, which ironically was edited by Michael Corda. Uh, he's oh. absolutely fascinated with it. I'll, I'll send you a link to a conversation we had. I think you'll find it interesting. Great. Yeah, he's please. A guy you would probably enjoy meeting. Uh, <laughs> yes. Let's go back to Paris a little bit, and I guess a, a memory every time you come, the, uh, the Santon that, that Tracy likes so much. Yeah, that uh, – uh, th- those were – they're a powerful thing, and uh, are, explain what they are. To the they're they're they they were they come from Provence, and uh, during in evidently historically around Christmas, it was uh, common in the villages there for them to have living creches with the villagers playing wise men and so on and so forth. Um, but during the revolution and afterward, the, that kind of religious expression was repressed. So they started making these small figures. They're about two inches high. Some of them are bigger, but usually about two inches high. And uh, they are of uh, types in the contemporary type, contemporary for then types in the town. So you have a baker, you have a fisherman, uh, you have, uh, anyway, on and on like that. Uh, you have a farmer, you have a painter, uh, and so on. And little figures, and these were arranged as if they were a, a crash during Christmas. And so the, the officials, there wasn't, they couldn't do anything because it wasn't overtly religious, but everyone knew this is what it meant. And it, it, it endures until even now uh, as, as an art form. Uh, and there are a number of places that you can buy. Uh, uh, in, in, for instance, in Paris, there's one shop in particular where you buy, uh, buy Santones. And Tracy was charmed by these uh, figures and always wanted to. Uh, she always wanted to buy some when we were there. Uh, we even visited in, in in X. Visited a couple of the uh, not factory, but of the studios that uh, produced these Santones, and uh, uh, she became something of an expert on them and and gave talks and so on and so forth. Uh, and every year. Uh, she would create a Santone village uh, at Christmas time and show it to the kids in and Austin so on. Or Amarillo? In, in in Austin, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. This was who we are while we were married, and uh, uh, so we still have. I mean, I know my daughters there. Those are they have. Uh, 
they split up Tracy's Santomes, so they they're treasured memories. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the year that you spent writing this. I don't want to give short shrift to Celeste, but uh, it, to some degree, to me, this was a bit of a, a bridge romance, something that was required, and maybe we can talk about it at a later date. Uh-huh. Uh, talk about Le Veuf de Jean-Louis Forin and, and that painting at the Orsay and how it affected you. Oh, Describe yeah. Describe the painting. Describe well, the painting first. That's a, that's a, yeah, that, uh, you know, there are greater. It's a it's a great painting. There are greater paintings, but I don't know that the greater paintings have spoken to me the way that one did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it shows there's a man, a bourgeois man, and he's dressed completely in black. And as you look at it, you you begin to think maybe that he's come from his wife's funeral. Um, it, it's called the title is the widower. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's in um, his wife's boudoir, and uh, there are her uh, her undergarments there in a in a chest. And he has one uh, in one arm is on his knee, and the other he holds this you know linen, I think, very nice white linen woman's undergarment, which he's looking at with the most sad and far away look that could be, that there could be. And he, it, what's he supposed to do with these things? Where, how he can't, how, what do, what do we do? His wife is gone and, <clears throat> and yet here are these intimate um, things that were hers. And it just, uh, I, I knew that feeling. And well, how do you not I, cry when you, when you see it, it? It just, it just, it, it really, it really is in a, it has a powerful effect on me. I think it would on anyone who took the time to, sure. to look at it and, and think of the story behind it. Um, so Anyway, yeah, I, yeah, it's, I. It's a very powerful part of the book. I could, I could feel what you, what you were sensing. So I just want to go, uh, uh, go forward and get towards the year 2019, as you <laughs> were able to miss the uh, the COVID uh, issue here. Yeah. Um, you sat down to to write. The, what was what was ultimately the motivation to write the book? I, <laughs> I had had, um, I got a email out of the blue in September 2018 the landlord people a couple I knew academics there in Paris they were going to be at Stanford in the from January to, to June 2019 did I want to rent their apartment and I wrote back without thinking I did not allow myself to think I just wrote yes uh, and uh, so now I had an apartment and what was I going to do and I had um, I I had been thinking, wondering if I had a book about Paris in me, and if I did, what would it be? I didn't want to write a guide. I didn't I I didn't want to write a history. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do that anyway, and so on. Anyway, I was talking with uh, a friend of mine, Steve Harrigan, and he said, "Why don't you write?" a book called Paris Without Her. And that title, that was, that 
unlocked. That was the secret code uh, unlocked. Uh, and I, I, I just thought, Oh yeah, that's the book. I can write that book. And, uh, as I, you know, I thought about the book and I realized that I would be writing about our times that we, we went to Paris together. And then the times that I went to Paris alone after her death, and that would be the book. And, um, so I arrived, uh, back in, in Paris in, uh, in, uh, January, 2019 and, uh, started, started writing. That's one thing. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way in Paris. If you go as a tourist and you're there even for two weeks, you can have a great time. You just go do all the Parisian stuff and that's fine. But if you're there longer than that, you I think you really need a reason to be there. You need something to do. And uh, some otherwise, um, it, it, it's a pretty hard city to get into, you know. Uh, and if you don't have a purpose there, on the on the other hand, having a purpose there, I found I was I really liked uh, writing in Paris. It was so. Uh, you know, I kind of thought, well, no wonder so many people do it. It's very congenial to that. And the, as you know, living there, the, the day-to-day things are uh, easily done. You don't have to get into a car for the, for, for the most part. You can just go walk to the grocery store and go walk to whatever. And uh, it's fun. You know, the you, you see people, you develop little kind of mini relations with the place that you buy a croissant every day or something. Uh, and uh, that proved, I found it to be a very, very uh, good place to work. And then after you've done your work for the day, you walk out the door and who knows what's going on. You know, there's Paris uh, and you've earned Paris it. Is- is full of a possibility. I mean, I, to me, it's a, it's a never-ending journey, whereas in America, you know, you want to get to the post-Oak Mall before they shut down. Uh, you have to get from A to B. Yeah. Uh, you, it's all about the movement. Uh, you go into a store, it's the transaction, it's not the interaction. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, you, you find that. You get into a certain kind of rhythm here. And I think if you're writing about Paris, it's much easier to write about it being here than being, say, in San Francisco for in my case, or, or being in, 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 in Texas, because it all, you feel it when you walk out. All the things you're writing about are things that you're absorbing in your quotidian ritual. Right, right, that's right. And I couldn't have written that book. I mean, I I wrote, I would say, three-fourths of it when I was in Paris. I wrote the final quarter when I came back here. But I had worked up my momentum uh, so I, I was okay, but I could not have written that book and not being American. I had to go to Paris to write that book for the very reason that you said you just writing about Paris, being in Paris and writing about Paris are two very complimentary things. And Absolutely. yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, Greg, I want to thank you for a, a beautiful book. I was very touched thank by you. it. Glad you wrote it. Uh, the title of the book is Paris Without Her. It's available everywhere now, correct? Uh, uh, April 20. goes on sale oh, April 20. Almost, uh-huh. You yeah. know what happened on April 20th? 
probably, but what? Adolf Hitler was born. Oh. Well, we move it to the, to the 21st. Yeah, it, 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 you, can, you, can, you can order it now so that you didn't do it on the 20th if you there want. There you go. So with, let's, let's erase that thought. Right. Paris without her, an homage to Paris and Tracy by, by Greg Curtis. Greg, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, hope to talk to you again. I do too. Yeah, this has been fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.